Holy and gracious Father, we thank you, O Lord, for this day and for the gift of every day that you give us, Father. We know that life is precious. And Lord, uh, especially as uh, uh, over the past months we have lost some folks who we're very close to, uh, lifelong friends and folks, people who are members of our family. And uh, Father, uh, we are reminded daily that every day is precious. Father, we thank you for this time that you have allotted to us to come together to worship as the body of Christ in this place. And Father, we pray that as we open your word this morning and we read the parable of the vineyard owner and think about, Father, what it means to be faithful to you, uh, Father, to, uh, to search for your truth through your son, Jesus Christ, and through your holy word, that, Father, that the word will, uh, will touch us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you for all those who are here this morning, and we pray for those of our number who are traveling uh, during this holiday season, and we pray for their safety. Father, open our hearts as well as our mouths as we sing praise to you this morning, and may we indeed feel the blessed assurance that we have in Jesus Christ, that all is well with our soul, and you, Father, uh, have uh, a place prepared for us in heaven for eternity. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And amen. Good morning. Will you please join me for the prayer for guidance? Lord, open our hearts and our minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read, and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. The gospel is from the gospel of Mark, chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. I'll be reading from the New Revised Standard Version. When When Jesus began to speak to them in parables, a man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a pit, for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to the tenants and went to another country. When the season came, he sent a slave to the tenants to collect for them his share of the produce of the vineyard. But they seized him, they beat him, and they sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent another slave to them. This one they beat over the head and insulted. Then he sent another, and that one they killed. So what was with many others, some they beat, and others they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent them to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is amazing in our eyes. When they realized that he had told this parable against them, they wanted to arrest him, but they feared the crowd, so they left him and they went away. 
and the word of God for all God's people. Thank you, Sue. Sometimes my um, my sermon titles, I kind of have a working title and then the title that kind of develops as I get deeper into it. And so uh, you'll notice in the uh, bulletin it talks about, uh, about uh, faithful and uh, false prophets, which was kind of my working title as I looked at this because you, you'll note that there are a lot of prophets being sent into uh, into the vineyard, or a lot of messengers being sent from the owner of the vineyard, and uh, the people reject them. and uh, And Jesus was uh, uh, referencing back to in Israel's history how many times they had killed and beaten the prophets. And yet, uh, with all of those uh, prophets who told the truth, there were also a number, uh, far more prophets of the culture around them, of the religions around them, then Israel would very often get sucked into those things so that they uh, were building altars to false gods and being led away uh, into lies. Uh, As I went further along, uh, I I began to see that, uh, that the people in this vineyard had a hard time receiving God's truth, and I thought, we can probably relate to that. I think uh, that probably the greatest challenge of, uh, of any people at any time is receiving God's truth. There is a sense of rebelliousness in us, and there's a sense that we have of ownership of this world. How God, how dare God come and tell me how to live? You know, I've worked so hard for everything. I've done so much. How dare he uh, claim ownership of my life? Uh, it's it's the old uh, 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 Jimmy Stewart prayer in the movie Shenandoah that Lord, you know, we 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 did all the digging and we planted the seed and we watered it and we harvested it and all, but uh, still we give you thanks, Amen. Uh, you know, we did everything, and I think there's a sense probably from these tenants in this vineyard that they're justifying their treatment of the messengers in part because they feel that they're working hard to keep this vineyard going. And yet you'll notice in the opening verses here in chapter 12 of Mark that it says, Jesus spoke to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a tire, a, a tower, and then he rented it. You know, in other words, if we're seeing this, the owner of the vineyard as God, God has done, provided us with so much, and yet we're, we seem to be blind to that. We're blind to all the work that has gone on before us by others who have been faithful to God to build this sanctuary. How many of you were part of the building of this sanctuary? I know that it's possible there could be a few around because it was back, what, 1950? Uh, Around 1950 that this uh, sanctuary was built. But we're here today enjoying this. And yeah, I, I didn't lift a finger for that. Uh, so many of the blessings that we have, so many of the things that have developed a long time to make our lives easier, or in sometimes you may say to make our lives a bit more complicated. But uh, you, you think back on it, back in 1975, the year Lydia and I were married, so that's about 44 years ago, uh, that was when the first personal computers were available. And you had to send off to, I think it was uh, Altair maybe or some name like that, the company, uh, a name we don't even recognize today. But you had to send off and they would send the parts to you and you had to put it together. That's just 44 years. Think about that. 
And you go back, it's only been a couple of decades that we've uh, carried a phone around in our pockets and, uh, you know, so-called smartphones. You think about, uh, you know, a hundred years ago, uh, back in 1919, all the movies were black and white and uh, uh, no sound and uh, just beginning to be shown on bigger screens. You used to have to go, you know, to the machine and you'd look down into it just to see something moving, just a very short clip of something. And yet today, the video images and everything around us are, are just overwhelming what we can do digitally. We're in a whole different age, it seems like, that that we have a hard time relating back to people just two generations ago or a generation ago. Our lives are so, so very different. And so the challenge for the church today is how do we hold on to a foundational truth of life? Because as, 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 as life swiftly changes around us, it's easy to become uh, anchorless, to begin to drift away from God. And not to recognize that we need that anchor of his word and his truth to keep our lives going in the right direction. And so we have this vineyard here, and the owner has given these people everything that they need, and he just rents it out to them. And it says, when it was time, he sent a servant to collect from the tenants his share of the fruit of the vineyard. Now, but the problem is they have forgotten one fundamental thing, is that they owe the very existence of the vineyard to the creator of the vineyard, the owner. And he has all the rights to ownership. And see, this is what I'm talking about, that we're in an age where we can quickly forget about God. And we can just float along as one new development and another new development, and we just think everything's just going to turn out great because we human beings have it under control. We're brilliant. Look what we're doing. We've landed on the moon. We're going to go to Mars. We're probably going to invent time travel pretty soon. It's true. Uh, just watch Netflix. There's, we're going we're gonna to be traveling in time. You know? uh, so we've got this kind of thing in the back of our heads that says, well, even though there are problems, we're going to solve them. Now, I was listening to NPR this week, and uh, uh, they had somebody on there, and he's written a book about medicine in 1942, uh, or 2042, uh, and uh, I think 2042 or 41, and about... All the challenges that we have and how we think everything is just moving in a steady line forward in progress in medicine. But his prediction in that time is we won't be doing any hip replacements and knee replacements. Because the antibiotics will will have failed us to the point where we can't do those things anymore without the infection setting in. And we already see that. We have members members of our church who are battling those infections. We have our bishop uh, of of the United Methodist Church in Virginia who has been out of commission for seven or eight months because of an infection that set in. And our antibiotics are failing us. And so, you know, his point was, we tend to think that everything is moving straight forward towards a cure for everything, and yet nature is battling back against us. And in many areas, we may have to accept the fact it's not going to be so, so great. And also, I think as a, as a people, including myself, we tend not to take responsibility for our health, health anymore. As human beings, we tend towards going to those things that the Bible says we'd better beware of. You know, don't drink too much. 
don't eat too much. And we say, well, that's just sour, that's just sour grapes, which I didn't mean as a pun today, given that we're talking about a vineyard. But, you know, that the Bible is just always trying to tell us what we can't do. You can't do this, you can't do that. But there's a reason, because the Bible has a lot of wisdom about some of these things, if you do them to excess, you're going to have to pay a price for it. And so as a, as a society and a population, we've got all these, these things going on. We think we can handle it, but, but we're, we're living in a lie. And that's the thing about these tenant farmers. I'm sure that they justified, they rationalized, they convinced themselves that what they were doing was correct because this owner never came by and he's sending these messengers to us. And uh, it says when it was time, he sent a servant to collect from the tenants his share of the fruit of the vineyard. So he just sends this messenger, this servant, to say it's time to pay the rent. And they decide they don't want to pay the rent. They never see this guy, and they've they've taken ownership of it in their own minds. And so they they beat him, and 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 they send uh, they they grab the servant, they beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. And again, the landowner sent another servant to them, but they struck him on the head and treated him disgracefully. He sent another one, and that one they killed. The landlord sent many other servants, but the tenants beat some and killed others. Now, the landowner had one son whom he loved dearly. Okay, so you see where this is going. Israel has had prophet after prophet after prophet. You know, Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel and all, they have come and God has sent them and they have spoken his truth and the people have rejected them. And maybe if I send my son, my only son. It's interesting here how it's phrased here. It says, um, uh, Landloader, landowner had one son whom he loved dearly. And I thought about First uh, John 3.16. My own, uh, God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son. So the landowner here has only one son. And it says, whom he loved dearly. And what do we see back in Mark 1.11? We see the baptism of Jesus and God proclaims from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And so, so it's very clear here who this son is, that this son is none other than Jesus Christ. And so the tenant farmers, when they see the son, they say to each other, this is the heir, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they grabbed him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. You know, when Jesus is crucified, he's crucified out of the vineyard, so to speak, outside the walls of Jerusalem. So it's very clear to the people who are listening, Jesus, this isn't opaque. This isn't a mysterious parable that needs a lot of explaining. In fact, it's so clear that it says that the rulers and the leaders and the, and the religious leaders at that time said, we got to get rid of this guy. But they couldn't figure out a good time to do it at that point. You see, they have to worry about the crowds and they have to worry about the people who are sympathetic to what Jesus is saying. And so they're going to wait. In our world today, if we move this forward, I don't think it's hard for us to see that we, in many ways, are just like those tenants. Uh, one of the things that, that, that Israel uh, happened in Israel as they began to move away from God in rebellion at times, and, and they would fall away from the faith, was, was that they began to see the temple as theirs, the city of Jerusalem as theirs, the vineyard was theirs. And they began to think that they had the right to change 
the vineyard to do whatever they wanted, and they began to adapt in uh, worship practices of the neighbors around them. Well, that happens in the church. It can happen in our lives. We begin to adapt everything into the church and into our faith uh, outside from the culture. And, 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 and God has a word and a truth that tells us the way we should go, but we begin to say, well, maybe, maybe that isn't so bad, or, you know, times change, or this doesn't apply anymore. Uh, I, I know I was reading uh, a letter from somebody this morning, and it was sent in another church uh, to the people of that church by a man who was, who was upset with what was going on in the church. And he said, I had talked to, uh, to our pastor a couple months ago about some of the things that disturbed me about what he was preaching. And he said, well, those things don't apply to us anymore. They just applied back in the first century to the Romans and to the Greeks and all, but they don't apply to us anymore. And he said how shocked he was that in essence he was saying that this word doesn't apply anymore. And it's so easy for us to slide slowly into that uh, kind of, of uh, uh, false religion that, that we don't even realize how far we have gone away. And what, what concerns me is the fact that every time they do a poll or do a survey, how few Christians today read God's word. It's out of fashion. We don't emphasize it. I had a pastor who was from up in the northeast, uh, United Methodist Church pastor up in the northeastern United States. And it's well known that if you do a survey that the people up in the northeastern United States are by far the more liberal of, of, of the folks in the Methodist Church. And they don't uh, tend to have a high regard for Scripture. Uh, they have the lowest numbers when it comes to when you ask somebody, do you read the Bible daily? They'll, they'll always be down their way at the bottom. Very few of them do that, or even monthly. And she asked me, she said, how do you get people in your church to read the Bible? And so I said, well, when you preach, do you preach out of the Bible? And she said, well, most of my preaching is stories. I do stories. I'm a storyteller. And I said, well, do you even take a Bible into the pulpit with you? And and she said, no, because I'm telling stories. And so I said, well, how do you expect your people to take the Bible seriously if you don't appear to take it seriously, if you don't think it's even worth opening up when you preach to them? And unfortunately, even, um, I, even within this congregation, I know, and in myself at times, uh, there's a neglect of the Scriptures we, uh, when I ask the question, and we do these little polls, and it's interesting, and I'm going to do a sermon around this, um, what are the four areas, and, and, you know, we're not pulling anybody out here if you answered on this poll, uh, but there's, a, there's something in, in Wesleyan theology called the quadrilateral, the Wesleyan quadrilateral. Some of you may be familiar with this, but it says that when we want to know what God's will is, how do we determine that? And we say there are, there are four things, a quadrilateral, four things that come into play here. One is reason. God has given us the ability to reason. Above all other creatures, we have the ability to reason. The other is experience, that as we experience God in our lives, that contributes to our knowledge of God. 
The other is uh, uh, tradition, which really means the interpretation of God by others in the church. So we have people that write commentaries and people, you know, and we have uh, church teachings and doctrines and everything. So you can learn from that. And the fourth one, but not the last one, is Scripture. And when we explain the quadrilateral, what we say is that these are not all equal. That everything, the reason, the experience, and the traditions all have to be interpreted through Scripture and filtered through the Scriptures. And what is not of the Scriptures, what is not uh, condoned or, or supported in Scripture, gets filtered out. That you can't have something that you come to by your own reason that contradicts Scripture, and you say, well, I'm going to accept my reason over the Scripture. But when I asked that question in a poll, it came out, I think about 42% of people said that their primary source of knowledge of God was the Bible. So that meant that that 58% of people said that there was something other than the Scriptures that was their primary source of knowledge of God. Now, if we don't have the scriptures, folks, as our primary source, how, the, how in the world does experience and reason, and, and uh, how, how do these things teach you about Jesus? Now, I realize church tradition, you know, and those things and commentaries and things can teach you about that, but how do you really know? How do you have that first source, that primary source of knowledge about Jesus? How do you know about your faith if you don't have the Bible? And so what my biggest concern today is that we have so abandoned the scriptures that we're beginning to float along in this, uh, no wonder there is conflict in the United Methodist Church. No wonder we're looking at a year from now, probably more than likely, most people are saying, a division in the church of perhaps two new churches or, or three new churches. We don't know. And there are people out there already organizing all this, both on the progressives and the conservatives, and everybody's already getting ready for this. And I've said over and over, by the way, not to frighten you guys too much about that. This church will exist. We'll be here. If we stand on the word of God and in our faith in Jesus Christ, we'll stand here and, and be here and contribute and, and continue to be part of God's kingdom. But if we're not holding to God's word, what do we have that can anchor us together as a, as, as a common teaching upon which we can, can come the knowledge of God and his will for us. It has to come through this. The people in Jesus' day, the people he's talking to here, the people who would, would uh, throw out these messengers and kill the son and all, were people who, uh, uh, they recognized themselves in Jesus' story here. They were people who were concerned more about holding on to the property of the temple and the power that they had in religion and all these things than they were about God's word and God's truth and the messengers who came to share with them that truth. And we've got to beware if, if we put the wrong things first. The very first priority of the church and of us as Christians is fidelity to God, faithfulness to God and to his word. And, and, and the church itself doesn't have the right to overrule that any more than these tenants had the right to overrule the will of the owner of the vineyard. Y'all know that, uh, obviously, I love bees. I, I love honeybees. Uh, but I also recognize that honeybees are not always faithful to me. Sometimes they rebel. Uh, it was interesting. I was telling Lydia last night, I was standing over one of the hives and, and, and watching 
and it, it was a new hive, and I'm watching, and there's a hole on the inner cover that you can look at. It's maybe uh, four inches long and an inch and a half wide. And I'm watching them there, and they're not reacting to me at all. But all of a sudden, one comes into the picture and begins to violently vibrate, you know, really shaken up. And all of a sudden, one, two, three, four, five of the, other, of the bees around begin to fly up towards me. And I realized that, that that one bee got in there and shook up all the other bees and said, there's danger, don't you see it? And they rebelled against me, <laughs> you know. And sometimes I look at, you know, the parable of the vineyard here where all through the scriptures in the Old Testament you find Israel compared to a vineyard, that God has planted this vineyard and he has done all these things and he's placed you within the vineyard. And why is it that I'm only getting wild grapes? I don't get good grapes. There's not a good crop out of this. And I, I look at these bees and I say, I have given you a home. You know, it, it, I have given, I, I, I go in there, you, you check for mites and you te- check for hive beetles and you check for, for foul brood disease, you check for all these things and, 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 and I care for them and take care of them. I want nothing but good for my bees. And then, and then they're going to produce a crop and then I want it to be good honey and then we can take that honey and we can use it, but I'm going to leave them enough honey so that they can get through the winter. And if there's not enough there, I'm going to go out in the wintertime and I'm going to give them some sugar syrup to help them get through and, and some, some patties of, uh, uh, that can help to feed them through the winter. I'm taking care of you, and yet here comes this one bee and says, he's dangerous. Let's get rid of him. And I thought that's what was happening in here. Somehow their interpretation of the vineyard owner changed from a benefactor into the enemy. And there are a lot of people out there today who see God as the enemy. And they don't want to accept his word. And so they ignore his word. But his word, folks, is the one thing that we are called to hear and to obey. So then it goes on and we'll end here. So they've grabbed him and they killed the son and they threw him out of the vineyard. So Jesus asked, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. They have rejected Jesus Christ, but he is now going to be the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it's amazing in our eyes. It says they wanted to arrest Jesus because they knew that he had told the parable against them, but they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. This part about what will the owner do. He will come and destroy these tenants and give the vineyard to others. Folks, sometimes Jesus is rough. Uh, What he just said there isn't acceptable to most modern ears. What do you mean he's going to come and destroy the tenants? I thought God loved us unconditionally. I heard somebody read the scripture where Jesus said to, to his disciples to love one another And then they added the words, the word, unconditionally to that. And I said, it doesn't say that in the scripture. It says, love one another, but not unconditionally. And Jesus Christ himself saw that those who rebel against God and get so far away from God that they can't be brought back into a faithful relationship with God, he says they will be destroyed. In fact, in in the scriptures, he uses, uh, in in the Gospel of John, the, the image of the 
vineyard as a place where people go through and prune. And what isn't producing fruit needs to be pruned off. And that seems harsh and hard to us, folks, but it's the word of the Lord and it's the word of God. And I think we have become very complacent about God and about the word and about listening to God and obeying God and seeing God as the owner of the vineyard, the owner of our lives, because we no longer have any sense of accountability that we will be held accountable in any way. Why should I live as Jesus asked me to live? I can live any way I want to live. And in the end, God's just going to take me and he's going to probably put me in a, in a little class up in heaven in a corner so I can, you know, kind of learn how to do, do things right. And then I'll, I'll graduate and I'll have a big celebration and he'll, he'll welcome me into heaven. That's it. But that's nowhere in the scriptures. In the scriptures it says God holds us accountable for our lives, for our actions. And so uh, every, scripture, every, every sermon I was told when I was in, in school has to end with the good news. And that's not good news. But the good news is that Jesus Christ has said, here's all you need to do. You need to be in me. You need to have your life in me. Go to, the, uh, to uh, Paul's epistle uh, to the Ephesians And in the first chapter, there are 14 different times that Paul uses the expression, in Christ. All you have to do is place your trust in Jesus Christ, hope in Jesus Christ, and then take up a cross and follow Jesus Christ, and you have nothing to worry about. And you will be saved by that free gift of God that God gives to us. Folks, it's free. Grace is free. Salvation is not of our doing, it is the work of God. But who in the world would accept a gift like that and then turn their backs and rebel against the giver? Jesus Christ invites you this day to trust in him, to place your faith in him, to know his word and his will, to follow him, and to know that on the day of his return, He will look at you and say, well done, good and faithful servant. You worked in the vineyard and you've brought forth good fruit. Enter into your reward. And amen. You know, wine is is an extraordinary thing. And I, I was reading this week, it takes like 872 gallons of water to produce one gallon of wine. So through the growing season, it's going to take that many gallons of water to produce that one thing. And uh, uh, they loved wine so much in the days of Jesus, they had nine different words for it. Uh, they, they understood it, and they understood the value of it and the investment in it. And when uh, we come to communion, while well, we use grape juice or, or uh, churches use wine for the blood of Jesus Christ, think of how much God invested in you so that you might bring forth good fruit when he shed the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. Nothing more precious has ever been given than that gift to us. As we go forth this morning, let us go forth knowing that God loves us so much he would give his son for us. And his greatest desire for us is to know joy not only in the life to come, but in this life here. Joy that comes only when we follow Jesus and trust and obey. Go in his peace and amen.